Hello, hello, Surf Park fans. Welcome back to Beyond the Ocean. I am so excited to come back from this brief summer break we've had here and post a hot new episode and share this incredible announcement, which is the return of the in real life physical event, the Surf Park Summit. Yes, folks, you heard me, a physical event. We are back October 4th and 5th. 2021 in San Diego, California is the number one event in surf parks and wave pools. If you are breaking into this industry, if you're a veteran and you've been building surf parks for years and operating them, or if you're trying to get your first one built, you really need to come to this event. Learn more at insiders.surfparkcentral.com. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to Beyond the Ocean. Here's a clip from today's guest. Duke Kahanamoku is credited with popularizing and, and surfing around the world. He went to Australia in 1915 and uh, took a surfboard out in the water and picked up a young lady uh, after riding a few waves himself and took her out in the surf and put her on her shoulders. And she was the first Australian to surf, but surfing took off in Australia and the best surfers in the world amongst them are from Australia. Duke took surfing to other places in the world, including the East Coast and the West Coast. I got hired in uh, 1968 to go to uh, Tempe, Arizona, where a gentleman made an artificial wave machine there. That It took too long in between waves, and the, the pond wasn't big enough hydrodynamically to, to have frequent and good waves. So they turned it into a swimming pond, but it did produce the first man-made waves. And uh, if you'd wait long enough, about three minutes between each wave, you'd get a pretty good wave out of it. Caught my first tube this morning. Sir. Sir, 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 sir. Welcome to Beyond the Ocean, the podcast exploring surf parks and the impact of technology on the future of surfing. We speak with technology leaders, investors, operators, and surfing legends to explore this exciting new movement. I'm your host, Chris Klusner. We're joined on today's show by Fred Hemmings, a living surfing legend who helped to co-found what we know today as the World Surf League, alongside Randy Rarick and Patty Panicha, who have both been on this show. As you've heard, Fred also had a personal relationship with Duke Kahanamoku, the most influential and well-known surfer anywhere in the world. Fred is also the original consultant for surf parks. He served as a consultant in 1969 for Big Surf in Tempe, Arizona, one of the earliest ever recorded facilities in this exciting industry. Today's episode is a blast from the surfing cultural past with Fred with an eye towards the future and how surf parks can influence and shape surfing culture. Fred was using Zoom for this recording, and I'm happy to report this was his first ever successful Zoom call. So without further ado, I bring you this wide-ranging virtual conversation with Fred Hemmings. I was born and raised in Hawaii in a, in a large um, Portuguese Catholic family. And um, my great blessing was uh, 
growing up at the beach of Waikiki and growing up in the shadow in the 50s of the great Hawaiians like Duke Hanamoku and John D. Kalpiko and Rabbit K. Kai and the other great Hawaiian surfers. Uh, and I also was uh, and still am uh, in my 65th year of membership at the Outrigger Canoe Club, which was founded in 1908 to preserve surfing and canoeing. So I had that heritage that I inherited, and I, as a young man, took up surfing. You asked me about my career, and there's an interesting point, and I put a disclaimer to it. When I got out of high school, I did not go to college. I decided I wanted to start my business career. And within several years of that, after a successful visit to the World Surfing Championships in Puerto Rico, I took my credentials and started producing professional surfing meets on the North Shore. I was the earliest advocate of pro surfing and started all the major meets through the help of a, a great man who's unheralded in the surfing world, Larry Lindbergh, TV network producer. I had events on all three television networks. And back before cable television, the only thing you could watch was CBS, ABC, and NBC. And they all had sports anthology series, and I had uh, events on it. One of the events is in its 50th year this year. I can't believe it. The Pipeline Masters is actually celebrating its 50th year. Uh, it's the longest standing pro event. I think it's one of the longest standing events, period. The Pioneer events, the pro surfing uh, really date back to um, the Makai International Surfing Championships, which was amateur, but then it spawned uh, the Duke Classic going to the North Shore. Larry Lindbergh convinced in 1965 uh, the owner and producer of the Duke Conomoco Surfing Classic to give $1,000 prize money. I came back from Puerto Rico in 1968 and saw that there was an opportunity to develop professional surfing and did that. My career also includes a number of other th- in entrepreneurial pursuits. Um, and I also served in the Senate of the state of Hawaii. Uh, I've written a couple of books. I have a beautiful family of four children, two by birth and two stepchildren whom I love dearly. And then I have seven grandkids. I, I tell my grandkids, Papa's going to die a poor man and not leave you any money because I'm going to take you on journeys so that you'll remember the journeys uh, and just won't get handed a little bit of cash when I die. And I'm just enjoying it so much. I've taken some kids to Madeira, Portugal, where our family roots are. Took a couple of grandkids to Peru to serve. Took two granddaughters to um, visit the White House and Capitol Hill and visit the congressional delegation. So I'm really having a wonderful time uh, with my grandkids and enjoying these years. I'm soon to be 75 years old. You mentioned Duke, and I'd love to start maybe there and hear a little bit more about your relationship with the Duke probably the most influential surfer ever. And I'd love if you could just provide a brief overview of who Duke is from your perspective and your relationship with him. Can you see the picture over my shoulder? I can. You know who that is? Oh, yeah. That's a picture Duke gave me. It's one of my prized possessions. It's very generously autographed. Duke was the greatest citizen of Hawaii in the 20th century, without a doubt, and most beloved we actually put a, on Duke's 100th birthday, we put a statue of him on Waikiki Beach, and it's probably the most photographed attraction in Waikiki. Duke was beloved by everybody. The reason is because of his character. He was a man of great aloha. There are, are a lot of problems nowadays, and there's some of them, unfortunately, spill into Hawaii. And a lot of young people, especially the ones with Hawaiian ancestry, are, have now oli, which means no. 
their no to a 30 meter telescope. So oftentimes when you propose to do anything in a way, the response by minority groups or by sometimes majority is I only no. And I like to say that Duke Kahanamoko knew only aloha. He was not a man of negativism. I never heard the man in all my years as a young boy growing up in the shadow in the last three years of his life, traveling with him on promotional trips on behalf of uh, Hawaii, pretty much around most of the country. I never heard the man utter a negative uh, word or have a negative response to something. And I oftentimes give examples of that. I can give you one. We're at the, um, Duke and I were the guests at the Huntington Beach Surfing Championship years and years and years ago. And uh, Duke was giving out the trophies and they announced the results and they gave the trophies out. And the, the kid that won third place evidently thought he should have won. And he was kind of stomping around on the podium. And then he went to the edge of the podium and he threw his trophy in the rubbish can. I think most reactions were like mine. What a poor sport. What a jerky is to do that. You know, that's really bad. And Duke looked at me and he said, oh, Freddie, that boy, he really wanted to win. Duke didn't see the kid. He just said, oh, that little boy, he really wanted to win. In other words, he didn't see the harshness in the kid's deeds. He just said, oh, that boy really wanted to win. So that kind of is a reflection on, I like to think it's it's that little thing that makes Hawaii special. It's a, people often say, what does the word aloha mean? And it's, you know, it's a greeting, it's a hello, it's a goodbye, it's a salutation. It's an extent, a greeting of goodwill. To me, Duke lived aloha, and, and aloha is really a value. It's a spirit. And I think part of the spirit that separates a little bit of Hawaii from the rest of the nation is we're not quite the materialists that other cultures are, especially continental cultures, U.S. We don't measure our success or the worth of someone else on their appearances, the clothes they wear, or how fancy of a car they drive, or the fact that they might live in a plush neighborhood with a big house. And, you know, that obviously influences a lot of people. But under the terms of aloha, that's not what's important. Excuse me, Martin Luther King, again, it's the content of your friend's character, not the fact that he's rich. I think I gave you a background on my relationship with Duke. Um, When it comes to surfing, actually, I wrote a book years and years ago, and it's still applicable. I can say prejudicially, and I am prejudiced. uh, I am born and raised in these Hawaiian islands. I consider it one of the great gifts of my life. So I'm very, I don't want to use the word biased, but I'm very supportive of Hawaii. And I can say with documented evidence that Hawaii is the wellspring of most things surfing. What I can tell you is that out of the thousands of years of, or tens of thousands of years of modern day homo sapien or humans history, countless cultures, both Western and Eastern cultures around the globe have have lived and prospered on seashores. And only the ancient Hawaiians, which is rather curious since Hawaii was probably the last place in the world to be settled by humans. Only the ancient Hawaiians developed the art of riding a wave for pleasure. And when you think about that, it's pretty profound because fishing villages on coastlines would go out, you know, oftentimes through the surf and come back through the surf, but no one ever said, hey, why don't we ride these waves for fun? Well, Hawaiians did that. And they, they developed all types of riding surf. They had a whole quiver, quote unquote, of surfboards. They had olo boards big, long, 16-foot long boards, and they had pipo boards that were three or four feet long. Uh, They really developed a sophisticated art of riding waves. 
we revived it back in the late 60s, uh, riding waves in canoes. Uh, we ride uh, on uh, surfing canoes, which are a little smaller and easier to maneuver. We ride 15-foot waves. It gets pretty scary. Everything that happened since then, Duke Kahanamoku is credited with popularizing and, and surfing around the world. He went to Australia in 1915 and uh, took a surfboard out in the water and picked up a young lady uh, after riding a few waves himself and took her out in the surf and put her on her shoulders. And she was the first Australian to surf, but surfing took off in Australia and the best surfers in the world amongst them are from Australia. Duke took surfing to other places in the world, including the East Coast and the West Coast. The first really international competition, and I mean, enduring, staying, was the Makai International Surfing Championship. The first major uh, pro events were in Hawaii. So Hawaii's really been at the epicenter of the evolution of the sport. And I have to make one exception, and I'm once again can't heap enough praise on another younger man, younger than me, whom I consider the Duke Kanamoko of the 21st century, and that's Kelly Slater. I think Kelly Slater's uh, surfing, number one, is unmatched and unparalleled in the history of surfing competition, but also his innovation uh, that I was a guest of Kelly's at the debut of his surf machine in the farm fields of Fresno, California. And it's it is a f- profound initiative, and I like to tell people on the day we were there that on that day and on most days, the best surf in California is in an agriculture field in Fresno. I do have to make this qualifier, though. It's not the first surf machine. I got hired in uh, 1968 to go to um, Tempe, Arizona, where a gentleman made an artificial wave machine there that it took too long in between waves and the the pond wasn't big enough hydrodynamically to, to have frequent and good waves. So they turned it into a swimming pond, but it did produce the first man-made waves. And uh, if you'd wait long enough, about three minutes between each wave, you'd get a pretty good wave out of it. So one of the things that everybody should remember about surfing is surfing the sp- sport is a lot like the personality of we surfers. Surfing is a a sport with no boundaries, and you kind of invent your ride and riding a wave as you ride it. You don't say ahead of time, you know, and there's no baskets, there's no goals, there's no points in your recreational surfing. You ride the way you want to. So surfing is a very spontaneous, inventive sport. Well, surfing itself is the same way. Surfing keeps reinventing itself. You know, and if you look at the history of how far it's come since I was a little boy, my first quote unquote small wave board was uh, nine foot four inches. When I started riding Waimea Bay and and bigger waves, uh, I had an 11 foot 48 pound big wave board made by Big Brewer that I affectionately called Big Red. I often named my board so I could talk to them when I'm surfing. They'd never talk back, but they usually did a pretty good job in what I told them to do. (laughs) But anyway, surfing is just never ceases to amaze me with reinventing itself. And I think the latest is that you're going to find oftentimes the best waves in the world on wave machines. Uh, Kelly's is one technology. I know there's other technologies being developed that are just profound. uh, And you'll get waves as good as Malibu in um, Dallas, Texas. I see that all coming. And uh, I keep asking myself, it can't get any better. And it does. As someone who's held public office for quite a long time, I'd be curious to get your take on the role that surfing plays in tourism 
and the role of surfing in public and private partnerships in a place like Hawaii, where surfing is a big part of the culture. And then you apply that to surfing in an agricultural field in California or Texas. What do you think surf parks can do or what impact will surf parks have on the future of tourism? I gave a talk in Huntington Beach years ago that summarized that question and because I knew it from Hawaii. And the people in Hawaii, a lot of the civic leaders, the, my colleagues in the Senate, in government, and a lot of the people, unfortunately, in the Hawaii Visitors Bureau that spends about 10 million plus a year in promoting Hawaii in various event with events, not just advertising. They would never adequately invest in surfing. Surfing is an industry. Surfing is what made Huntington Beach, Huntington Beach. When I went to the Huntington Beach Surfing Championships back in the 60s with Duke, it was pretty much a skanky place. You know, a lot of drunks on the street, old beat up stores. Well, they started, uh, their mayor, who was a, just a brilliant guy back then, started identifying Huntington Beach as surfing. And if you walk down Main Street today in Huntington Beach, it's a pretty upscaled area. You know, they've got a Duke's restaurant there and they've got all these wonderful shops. And that's because they were smart enough to turn surfing into an industry and build Huntington Beach around the surfing industry, which obviously made an attraction out of Huntington Beach. I've often told HVB they should do more to make surfing part. When you think of Hawaii, you know, you think of Diamond Head, you might even think of Duke Anamoku, you think of Hula Girls. And one of the things should be part of Hawaii's subliminal ID for people around the world is surfing, because we are, in fact, the holy grail of the surfing world, despite, you know, what's happening at Nazare and Jaws and other places. Still, people consider uh, Hawaii the ultimate surfing destination. The North Shore and Oahu in particular, and as I understand it, there are a few active facilities already on Oahu and other places. From your perspective, what's going well in some of these surf park facilities in Hawaii or otherwise, and how can the people running them think about making them even more effective for their surrounding communities? It's a huge pet peeve of mine. The civic officials both in the state government and the city government in Hawaii, the county of Honolulu, invest untold millions in recreational facilities, baseball, softball, basketball courts, all types of things, and very little into shoreline facilities for surfing, which is a travesty. The only thing they really have is the Haleiwa Beach House, where they do have a couple of surfboards, but no surfboard lockers for local people or anything like that. You know, they have, I would say, $10 million worth of tennis courts on the North Shore, but they're lucky if they have $10,000 worth. I mean, they don't even have good showers for surfers. My belief is that Hawaii is taking surfing for granted and not done a good job of politically of stewarding surfing resources. Every surfing beach should have good showers, good facilities, you know, toilets and things like that. Plus, you know, surfboard lockers and other uh, amenities such as good parking for surfing. They do it for everything else. Why not for surfing? So it's kind of a pet peeve with me. And I'd ask all surfers to work with their local elected officials and tell them how important surfing is to the livelihood and well-being of Hawaii. And like I said, there's better surf amenities in Huntington Beach than there are in the most famous strip of surfing in the world. I do have to say something about the North Shore. We're quite blessed. It's about seven or eight miles from Haleiwa 
to Sunset Beach, but in that strip, there's just unbelievable surf. There's Haleiwa. You know, there's during the early wintertime, Lani Akad takes a northeast swell. It can get anywhere from solid eight feet up to, I've surfed at about 20 feet. We're just long, beautiful wilds. Outside Haleiwa, there's a deadly spot called Avalanche. Outside Lani Akad, there's a place called Cloud Break that I surfed once with Buzzy Trent damn scary. You're way out at sea. It really is a, a deep water break. There's Chun's Reef, which is just a charming little place, and it's got a lot of romance and some hidden treasures to it that I won't go into. Now, you've got Waimea Bay that starts breaking in about 10 to 12 feet and goes all the way up to the time it closes out at about 35 feet. And I've been out there when it closes out, and it's a rather scary spot. Probably got the most famous wave in the world, the Bonsai Pipeline. You got back doors, you got Sunset Beach. Uh, so you have all of these incredibly world-renowned surfing spots all within a seven or eight-mile coastline. So it really is a, a wonderful place for surfing to call home. I've been to the North Shore personally during uh, and after Triple Crown times, and it tends to get very busy. But I wonder, how do you, from your days running the contest and running the show versus your days in, in more political roles. How do you think about all that foot traffic and tourism for those events? And, and how could other municipalities, including ones building surf parks now, how can they think about harnessing that attention? I've given a lot of thought about that because I'm a local boy. And I think this planet, and I do want to put a word in about this when I finish my first thought here, I think there's carrying capacities. Hawaii has a carrying capacity where you can reasonably have how many tourists are here. And I think we've exceeded it. And there's some very intelligent ways to stabilize number of arrivals, and that is uh, license accommodations. No one can escape the laws of supply and demand. So if you want to make more money from tourism and have less people, you limit the supply of visitor accommodations. So if you license them and only allow, let's say, 15,000 tourist accommodations, everything included, hotel rooms, uh, lease accommodations, 30 days or less, bed and breakfasts, only so many on the island, those will become very valuable because people want to come to Hawaii and say, well, I'll pay $300 a day for a room because I, I want to go to Hawaii. So you really, by limiting supply, you drive up costs. It's an axiom that it's inescapable in economics. And so my motto is we want less tourists spending more money. And I think that would do it. We really have to look at, and this is something I really believe in. I proposed this years ago, do things to create more surfing opportunities. Anytime you propose something new or different, you're going to have a protest. The history of humankind is made by, progress is made by those who dared to break the norm, not sustain it. Most politicians uh, are in the business of sustaining the norm. When you propose something out of the box, you get criticized. But here's some of my out of the box thinking for surfing, and you can judge it accordingly. Number one is night surfing. I think there are locations, for instance, Haleiwa. You don't have any residential properties right in the immediate vicinity. So you put up uh, stadium quality lights. So on an eight-foot day at Haleiwa, when the waves are just... And I love Haleiwa. That's at that right slide of Haleiwa on the right day. It's big and hollow, and you can work the hell out of it, and you also can pull into a tight barrel. You turn the lights on. You surf all night if you want. You could do that with a number of other surfing locations without quote-unquote, offending anybody on shore. So that's one thing to expand it. 
Another thing too, and I've, this really would work in California, and it would work in places all around the world, but mostly especially California. The best waves in California are usually on points, but most of California is a shore break surf site. California is. So what you do is you, you do a topography map of a good surf or a section of a good surf. Like you take a 100-yard run at Malibu and you build with either concrete pylons, you build an artificial reef and you build it far enough out so it wouldn't create any nearshore currents. You know the swell's going there, but it's just too damn deep for the swell to break. So you build an artificial reef and you make yourself a, a right and left slide uh, surf site in deeper water. The swell goes through there, breaks nice, and then it keeps going and builds back up and breaks on the shore. So you can have the best of both worlds. Or you could set up a place where the waves don't have any good shore surf and just catch the swell outside. But there are innovative ways that to enhance the number and quality of surfing sites. And uh, it, oh, it's up to open-minded people. Now, the devil is um, politics. It's convincing people that control the purse strings, people that collect all your money in California, you're in deep trouble there. They're collecting more taxes from you at the point where a lot of your investors are leaving your state. But you should be getting that back in, in services that enhance the life and pleasure of Californians, not the life and pleasure of the bureaucracy. So that's very political, and, but you asked the question, and unfortunately, uh, politics is the most expensive and pervasive thing in our lives, and surfers better have someone at the table when it comes to time to making decisions. And that's why I was very proud to be a surfer uh, at the state legislature and be a surfer who ran for the office of state of the governor of Hawaii and uh, who was also back in Congress on numerous occasions advocating different things, uh, what I think were betterment of all of us. I wanted to ask a couple more things. I know we're short on time, but just a couple more thoughts from you. Uh, one is on the future of sustainability and surf parks. You've been to the Kelly Slater pool. You've seen how large a facility is. You know, what can some of these surf parks that are popping up in places like deserts, how can they try to work with the local communities to make sure that these facilities are only positive benefit? And, you know, any thoughts you have, whether it's political, whether it's commercial, whether it's strategic, any thoughts you have would be great around sustainability in surf parks. Sustainability is a, a very important world. It's an important word in serving, but it's also for the benefit of humankind. And it go, gets back to carrying capacity. As far as surfing goes, uh, you know, we went over it. It's up to surfing leaders to convince civic leaders and decision makers in different environments, uh, whether it be the city or the state or even developers, you know, there's no problem with putting surfing facilities in private sector places. But, you know, there's boundless opportunities. You can set up on the edge of a lake a big surf machine, I mean a real big one, and shoot waves down the edge of the lake. Shoot a big enough, powerful enough swell that it would go a mile down the edge of a lake and you'd have a mile-long break, you know. And, of course, when it got to the end of the mile, most of the energy would have dissipated and you'd have a two-foot ankle snapper wave. But the point is, you could set up a lot of, there's opportunities abound in that. So I used to ask myself sometimes, 50 years ago, I'd paddle out to Macon, 1969, 35 feet, no jet ski, no lifeguards, three or four guys in the water, maybe 10 guys on the beach watching. And I was risking my life. I was paddling out in a way that I knew or surf that could kill me. So the question is, why would I do that? I think it's a Star Trek gene in us that drives us to go where no, no one's gone before. 
but it's the gene that uh, genetically in the DNA of, of our species and most animals that, that broadens the horizons of humanity. It's easy to follow, but it's very rare and difficult to be the first. So being the first to do something, the first to start pro-surfing or the first to ride Waimea Bay or the first to ride Jaws or the first to ride Nazare or the first person to get in a rocket and blast off to the moon. That's what human experience is all about. It's expanding the horizons of humanity and it's genetically in the genes of human to do so. And a lot of people died on the way, you know, that never made it. I couldn't agree more. I think it's exciting what you talk about and then applying that to the context of surf parks is there's going to be a lot of firsts to come. I just wanted to say thank you again for taking the time for this, for contending with the Zoom uh, technical difficulties. So this was, was this your first successful Zoom call? I heard a Zoom. I know how to spell it, but that's the only thing I, I want to thank you for your patience. And next time we do this, you're probably going to have to fly to Hawaii and just hook me up yourself because it took us about a half hour for you to walk me onto a technology where I could get on the line with you. All good. Thank you for taking the time. And I, hey, I'll take you up on that. My wife and I would love to come back uh, for another visit to the beautiful Hawaiian Islands and come say hello. You let me know and I'll buy you a Mai Mai burger and a Mai Tai. That sounds incredible. Well, thank you so much for your time and talk to you soon. Aloha. Good. Aloha. Hey everyone, here's Chris again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. For those of you who want more information on surf parks and the topics covered in these episodes, Surf Park Central's Insider Membership might be for you. Insiders are people serious about surf parks and the organizations they represent. You can join Insiders for a monthly membership fee and rewatch all the surf park summits that have ever happened. You can get transcripts, access to research reports and white papers, even see webinars with special guests like those who visit us on this podcast. So check out surfparkcentral.com slash insiders to learn more about this exclusive professional community for surf parks. Check it out, surfparkcentral.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Do leave us a review if you like what you hear. It really helps us to get the word out, get featured, and get more people to listen in. Also, please check out our website, beyondoceanpodcast.com.